0: Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome. For those of you who I don't know, I'm Eugene Cash. I'm one of the teachers here at Spirit Rock. Um, I also teach, lead the uh, San Francisco Insight Meditation in San Francisco. It's nice to be here with you all, as usual. It's always nice to be here. Um, we'll have a uh, time to sit for about... 35 or 40 minutes, and we'll have a time to practice in a more interactive fashion, where we can hang out or stretch or go to the bathroom and practice. And then we'll have um, some kind of, something will happen after that, we'll see. We're not. It's not clear yet. Hopefully it'll come clear in the meditation. So I'll give a teeny bit of, a inst- little bit of instruction just to get us here and then and then I'll let you just, I'll let you be. So it's really helpful. Oh, Let me just see, how many people, anybody here for the first time, first time? And a number of people, great, and keep your hands up a sec. I actually like to see who's here. First time, great. There you are, okay, good, Every great, time. welcome. Every time is the first time. Every time is the first time, one of the <laughs> more experienced <laughs> students says. Um, So welcome, especially for those of you who are really here for the first time. (laughs) Um, I will give a little bit of instruction, um, and then um, stay, do as best you can. Follow the instructions and see what happens. But especially if you're here for the first, first time, don't have any judgments about yourself. don't have any judgments about doing it wrong. You get you get full permission to do it wrong. Okay? If you're here for the first time even though you've been here many times, you also have permission to do it wrong. So there's no nobody has to worry about doing the meditation tonight. In fact, sometimes the less you do, the better it'll be. So but okay. So good to sit up straight. Good to sit up in a way that is stable, to find a posture um, that you can allow the body to relax in. And so, good to have your back not stiff, but upright. And if you're in a chair, good to have both feet flat, so that it's stable, not, the feet aren't um, pointed at each other, or the feet aren't, the legs aren't crossed. if you're on a cushion or a bench, it's good to have a sense of your rear on the cushion. If you're first time on the cushion, mostly you want to sit on the front third of the cushion, so it tilts your pelvis up a little and then your legs can go on the ground and then you have a sense of stability, of sitting with your butt and your two legs on the ground. And as you um, Um, begin to inhabit the posture, it's very helpful to let your eyes shut, to let your attention come inside the body. What's important here is not outside of you. What's important here is inside of you. And that inner sense of body is a wonderful place to start the meditation to begin to feel your body, to feel feel yourself sitting here. When the Buddha taught, gives the teachings on mindfulness, the first place he tells us to be mindful is to be mindful of the body, to pay attention, to feel, to sense, to begin to know, to be aware of the body as it is in this moment. And you'll notice that there's, it's often easier to actually feel your body if your eyes are closed. Generally, when our eyes are open, we get um, enchanted with what we see. And there's an aliveness here. There's aliveness a that's expressed in each moment by the body that we wanna be in touch with, awake to. And so beginning to feel or sense the body. And you could do this, the whole meditation could just be feeling your body, sensing your body, feeling the liveness. Notice how it changes, notice what parts of the liveness come forward. Maybe the shape of the body, the outer form. Maybe the points of contact, where your rear is touching the cushion or the bench or the chair. Maybe the hands touching your thighs or touching one another. (coughs) Maybe the coolness or warmth of the air as we sit here. The contact of the skin with the air or the contact with your clothing. And then, of course, as we sit here, feeling our body, sensing our body, beginning to inhabit our body, beginning to bring body and mind together, if we pay attention to the body, we'll begin to notice that the body is breathing. that you don't have to do the breathing, but you can begin to be mindful of the breathing, aware of the breathing, sensitive to the body breathing. So, as you feel or sense your body sitting here, we want to highlight those sensations that we call <clears throat> the breath, or become particularly sensitive to the experience of the body breathing. The body and the breath, being mindful of the body and breathing in this way, is one of the ways we begin to bring body and mind together to help establish a sense of composure, a sense of presence, a sense of being collected, letting go of the day of whatever it took to get here beginning to unplug from whatever happened beginning to unplug from whatever you imagine is gonna happen beginning to unplug whatever you plan on doing tomorrow or six weeks from now or next year and get here, arrive here, find yourself here with the body, the liveness of the body, the breathing of the body. And especially if you're brand new to the meditation practice, it's really helpful to get familiar with this part of the terrain of the body and the breathing and centering oneself, unifying oneself in this way, in the present, in the now, here, body, alive, breathing. if you're more experienced you may use the body and the breathing for a while to compose or collect, concentrate and then open the meditation and bring that same sense of collectedness or composure to whatever you, the predominant experience might be that's here now without grasping for anything, without pushing anything away. Letting each thing be, letting each moment live with your mindfulness, with your presence, awakefulness. Whether it's emotions or feelings or sounds. The art of meditation, the art of mindfulness, is also the art of heartfulness, the art of bodyfulness, the art of being present with things as they are, moment by moment by moment, letting everything come, letting everything go. So we'll have a few minutes to continue practicing in a more interactive form. If you want to get some tea or a cookie or hang out, um, if you want to sit, you're invited to keep sitting. And you know, if you're hanging out in this room, you might whisper a little bit or be a little bit quieter than in outside. You could be more exuberant. So again, good evening everybody. Um, I'm going to read some of the announcements, um, so I don't have to read them all at the end of the evening. Um, there's information table in the back if you need any information about anything. It's all back there. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, tonight's talk is available to stream or download dharmaseed.org, uh, or to order by mail. There's forms in the back for that. It says, as a courtesy, please turn off all cell phones, blackberries, PDAs, etc., while attending the class. <clears throat> uh, there's a lot of opportunities to volunteer at Spirit Rock. If you've uh, never practiced in the Uh, If you've never done any uh, service as practice, it's one of the ways that you can practice, is to volunteer and give your time or your energy in some way, shape, or form to Spirit Rock, and it's a wonderful way to practice. Um, You can help out on day longs, or housekeeping, or Monday night dinners. You can check out the website for volunteer opportunities. there's a family program that offers children's dharma class every Monday night if you have children there's a number of day long programs they want me to alert you to Spirit Rock would like you to know about um, Saturday March 1st a day long working with the body in practice with John Travis March 2nd a day of renewal recognition and rejuvenation for care providers with Phil Moffitt and Brooke Brown. The next weekend, on the 7th, there'll be, oh, on Friday night, the First Friday Dharma and Recovery. There's a new class that'll be meeting, it looks like, the first Friday of every month with Kevin Griffin. I believe Kevin wrote a book called One Breath at a Time. Um, Saturday the 8th, um, there's a seminar with David Rico called Our Commitments to Love and Realism. The next day, there's a day I'm working with uh, Judgment, with Donald Rothberg. Also, Sunday the 9th in the evening will be a, um, a few hours of chanting and meditation with um, Jai Utal and Deborah Chamberlain Taylor. If you've never done any devotional practice like that, it's very, very powerful, very beautiful. Well, can really uh, um, take you away from everything except what's true. And then um, Saturday, they have have a day long that I'm doing listed here. It's, a, it's further out, May 3rd. It's a day that I'm doing with Frank Ostaseski, who's a good friend of mine, who's the was the founder of the Zen Hospice Project and uh, um, now leads heads up the Meta Institute, which trains um, caregivers on end of life care. Um, and Frank and I are going to do a day on a spiritual friendship, the value or meaning or possibility or power of friendship, um, uh, in the spiritual path. And we've been good friends for about 20 years. And practice together, and I think it'll be an interesting day. And you can come with a friend or, you know, make a friend while you're there. Then <coughs> I have one other announcement I want to make, which is from San Francisco, which is Frank, actually, Frank Aseski is doing a four-week class called The Spirit of Service. And um, it's a great opportunity to practice with Frank, who's a wonderful teacher, who knows as much about service as practice as anybody I know, or anybody I've met. Um, And it'll be a four-week, four-Tuesday evening class uh, in the city. If you're interested, there are flyers in the back on the table. Or you can go to uh, sfinsight.org. It'll be listed there. So those are the announcements for now. I think there's some, still some end of evening ones. I'll give it the end of the evening. Um, I don't have a formally prepared talk for tonight. I've been thinking about a few things. And we'll see what happens. you know, maybe I'll give a short talk, and we'll have a discussion, or maybe I'll just, you know, kind of talk on and on, and that'll be the evening. We'll we'll see. We don't know yet. But what I've been thinking about a little bit has been based on. I just got back from doing a self retreat for a month, and. Um, one of the differences of this retreat is I didn't um, interview with anybody or I didn't check in with anybody, I just I've, I just felt like unplugging, I felt like not relating, I felt like just seeing what happened, okay, I'm just going to pra- practice, but I didn't even want to do any formal practice. I just wanted to see what happened if I stay present with myself for a month. And so, I mean, I sat and walked, or laid down, or stood, whatever, whatever position I was in, the practice was always the same. You know, what, what's happening now? What's here now? And at times, various practices would come forward that I know and that I've done over the last 20 or 25, or however long it's been. 25 years at least. Um, but I was definitely most interested in just being here, just being here with this body and this heart and this mind and seeing what happens. And the, the strongest, you know, and a lot happened, all kinds of things happen. If you've never been on a long retreat, you know, it's an adventure. It's a great adventure. It's a beautiful adventure. And, uh, and one of my wishes, really, for everybody is that you somehow find the time to go away for a week or a month or six months and just be with yourself. Be present. See what happens. See what is this about. What is this humanness about? What is this aliveness about? What is it if we're not immersed in our activities? What is it if we're not immersed in all the doings that we become involved in? What is it when we're not immersed in our responsibilities or our roles? And not that any of these are bad things. These are all, you know, beautiful, wonderful. Our lives, you know, our they have a a beauty to them, our roles have a beauty, our responsibilities, how we enact our responsibilities have a have a really beauty to them, a delight, can have a great pleasure and great amount of awakening in that form. But it's really interesting to begin to unplug from all of it, to unplug from how we know ourselves, to unplug from Let's put it this way. One of the things that became kind of striking as I came back is how much of life is just filler. It's just filler. It's not actually so important. It's not so... It's actually not so beautiful or not so precious, particularly. You know, the news. It just goes on, right? It's one of the great things about unplugging for a while. You see, it's, oh, it just keeps going. Not a big deal. You know, if it's not this, it's that. You know, really. And it doesn't mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't be engaged in life and shouldn't give our all. What I'm suggesting to you, it's very important to take periods and unplug and see what the world looks like, see what our life looks like after we begin to unplug from things. And even a period of meditation is a period of unplugging. You're not doing anything when you sit here. I hope you all know that. (laughs) You know, there's a very famous Buddhist book, it's called Going Nowhere, Being Nobody. That's that's the spirit of practice. And it's not because we're going nowhere. It's because there's nowhere to go. It's not because we're nobody. It's because there's nobody here. You know, what we take to be reality may not be the whole picture. And the conventional and habitual life we lead the trance-like life we lead, at some point, we need to break the trance a little bit. We need to say, well, wait, 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 is this all that it's about? You know, is it all about functioning and getting and you know reading and writing and working and relating and doing and having and keeping and making? And I mean, those are all great things, you know? at certain points, you know, have their import, have their value, but at some point we need to unplug. And if you look at the myth of the Buddha, that's one of the really powerful themes in the myth of the Buddha's awakening. He unplugged. And he unplugged big time, right? He unplugged from being wealthy, he unplugged from his means and his wealth. He unplugged from his, and all that that gave him, you know, the, the symbolism and the mythology. You know, he cuts his hair, he takes off his beautiful clothes and his jewels and his robes, and he leaves all of it. He unplugs. He unplugs from his heritage, from his inheritance, right? He's going to be a king. You know, he's, got a, he's, on, the, he's on a fast track, Right? He's, he's upwardly mobile, totally. And he, he unplugs from that. You know, he has a family. He leaves his family. This is one of the hardest pieces for people these days in, the, to, in studying Buddhism, is that the Buddha left his family. I'll say a little more about that, and I'll give you a, one perspective about it in a second. But he unplugs from his wife, from his child, from his parents. His parents don't want him to leave. His parents don't want him to go become a monk or an ascetic and don't want him to go live in the forest with nothing, with a robe made out of rags. You know how parents are. They don't want you to do that. <laughs> if you have children, you don't want them to do it. You know, it's you know, No, no, it's keep your job and meditate a little bit. You know? <laughs> it's good you're meditating, but not too much. But the Buddha unplugged, and he unplugged for a reason because he wanted to see something, he wanted to understand something, he wanted to realize something that nobody had seen, that nobody had realized, nobody had understood. He actually had a tremendous vision, the Buddha, and he had a vision of a freedom that people said was not possible. And he had had the the, uh, power, the capacity, the trust in his heart, in what his heart yearned for, sought in that freedom, that he followed it. And he followed it by totally unplugging and seeking that freedom, and then discovering it, realizing it, making it real. Now, just for those of you who it's difficult, and this is really actually true for many people, and it was for me, it was actually a difficult part of the Buddhist teaching that the Buddha left his wife and his um, child, young child. I don't think his son was, I can't remember exactly, but he was very young. I, don't, I think maybe he was a baby or, you know, and like, personally, I couldn't do that. I mean, one of the reasons I probably never spent m- much time in Asia or became a monastic was I had a daughter um, soon after um, I started practicing. Like basically, they both started, they both came at the same time, practice and daughter. And, uh, and um, I was very clear. I wouldn't, you know, even though I was very drawn to practice, I wanted to do it in a way so I could be a parent. And I did that. I did as many retreats as I could, and I did all kinds of practice. I used to. I was very inspired. I used to sit sometimes five times a day at home when I was first practicing. You know how you are when you're first practicing. You're really inspired. So it went downhill from there a bit. But um, but I was uh, but I wasn't going to go off to Asia for a year or two or three because it just just didn't work for me. But the Buddha actually did. He really unplugged, and people have a hard time with that part of the mythology. And here's my understanding of it at this point. My understanding is actually that we all have to unplug from our family. that's, That's part of the spiritual path. May not mean we have to leave them, but we have to unplug at some point. We have to let go at some point of seeing, relating in the habitual, conventional way that we've been acculturated or we've been um, uh, shaped into relate. And see, well, where what, what, is, what is the freedom that we seek and then what's it like to relate from there? And, and this is in the myth of the Buddha, what happens is he leaves and then, and he goes, seeks his awakening, he awakens, and then he comes back. comes back to his village, his home. And his, um, his wife, like, you know, everybody said, oh, he, the Buddha's here. Like, he's a Buddha now. And she's like, he's no Buddha to me, you know, right? He's like, he left, and I'm not going to go see him. And everybody goes to see the Buddha, right? But she's, like, not having any of it. You know, how, how it is, you know. <laughs> he left me. I'm not, I'm not going to go to him. And then, um, but the Buddha, who, you know, is, he's a sensitive guy, a little bit. And he, uh, he realizes what's happening, and so he goes to her, which just that is something in the mythology, right? Because whenever anything's out of the ordinary, it means something, so he goes to her, and there's a kind of reconciliation and with both her and his son and they both end up coming into the monastic order. And they become monastics and they both awaken. So here we have, and this is why thinking of it as a mythology is very helpful. So he leaves, he unplugs, but then they have a new relationship, they have spiritual relationship. They're back in relationship but it's a relationship of another order and it's true for us that we need to unplug and I'll tell you one of the ways that I unplug periodically with my daughter it's my daughter who's 25 now that's how I always know how long I've been practicing because of how old she is so she's 25 and probably when we were about 10 or 11 she was about 10 or 11 (laughs) I'm probably still about ten or eleven. <laughs> she, uh, we would do a little. Pr- we started to do a practice together, and the practice was we would sit together and look at one another, and she would have to see that I'm not her father, and I would have to see that I'm not that uh, that she's not my daughter. And this is a very, this was a very short practice, take about a minute before she would say, okay, that's enough, because it was a little weird when it happened, right? When we start seeing beyond the role, beyond the idea, beyond the history, beyond whatever's happened, and we start to see, oh, there's somebody here who's not my idea of who they are. And this is true, and you could do this with anybody in any relationship, although it's better if they, if you can do it together. It's a little weird if you do it with them alone. They don't know you're doing it. You're, you know, it's better, better if you, it's agreed. But you could do it with, do it with a friend and look at them and see that they're not your friend. That's, that's only one piece of who they are. And that's, it's very interesting to all of a sudden see. And even, I mean, we could start to deconstruct this very much. I mean, even, even the idea of man or woman I mean, that's one, one aspect of who we are. Even the idea of human being is an idea. What, what's actually here? If we're not an idea, if we're not a thought, if we're not based on some past knowledge, And what's actually here? What is this consciousness that speaks and listens? And even those terms we could keep deconstructing which is very important in practice, is to begin to deconstruct, to to unplug from our habitual ideas, from our habitual way of seeing. Not that it's bad, it's not bad at all. It just is more the surface of reality rather than the depth. And part of practice is to start to move to something deeper, something more, something that's not the surface something more essential about who and what we are. And even one period of meditation is an un, can be an unplugging. And then if we're meditating regularly, it means we begin to unplug more regularly. And then if we have the time and the means and the opportunity and the blessing to go do retreat, we get to unplug for a day or a week or a month or a year and to begin to see through those eyes what's here to begin to see from that heart what's here and it's um, challenging to unplug anybody everybody know why it's challenging anybody know why Because we're... Pardon? The mind likes to plug in. The mind likes to plug in. It's our habit. Habit, yeah. We're attached. Yeah. We're attached to things. We're attached to the familiar. We're attached to the usual. We're attached to wanting things to be somewhat fixed. We, we, maybe. Pardon? Well, the, the common is a sense of responsibility, I'll speak a little later about the difference between engagement and being plugged in. Because I believe we can totally fulfill our responsibilities without being plugged in. And in fact, we—it's it, you know, the Buddha, who was totally unplugged, and it said lived in Nirvana for 35 years after his awakening, he functioned at a very high level. He was the CEO of a big organization, right? That developed around him and grew and grew and grew. With, you know, with little, you know, monasteries all around northern India and Nepal. He related to people on every level of society. He related to other religious leaders. He related to kings and states people and he related to uh, um, wealthy business people, people with means, donors. He related to what would, we would call common folk farmers and you know, merchants and he related to people we would consider more of the underworld, murderers and thieves. He related to courtesans all while he was unplugged. So I wouldn't say that necessarily. It's that we're attached to the familiar. We're attached to the usual. And we don't have to judge ourselves or berate ourselves or be harsh with ourselves. We want to see what's true. We want to see where our attachments are and then also see what happens as we begin to unplug or let go, or maybe even better way to say it is, they let go of us, our attachments. The, the, one of the great attachments that we all have is this attachment to um, stasis, to things being static to keeping things the same. And the familiar is part of that. And it's just, you know, and in conventional reality, everybody would say, well, well, yeah, I want my wife to stay, and I like my car to stay, and I like this. So why wouldn't I want that? And it's fine to when that happens, that's great. You know, it's good if your partner stays or things stay familiar. But they won't, ultimately. It's not the nature of reality. The nature of reality is that there is no stasis. There's no stasis anywhere. There's nothing static anywhere. The nature of reality is much more an ecstasis, which is, of course, in English means ecstasy. It's ecstatic. Reality is ecstatic. And that's actually frightening for many of us. And we think we want the ecstatic, but do we really? Because it means that we see that there's nothing here to hold on to. It's not even that we have to let go ultimately, there's nothing we can hold on to because it's all moving, it's all changing, it's all in flux. All of reality, not only all of reality, or or because all of reality is in flux, it means we ourselves are totally in flux. There's no fixed self. You know, there's the familiar sense of self, right? It's very familiar, Eugene. Known him a long time. He's a good guy. I like him a lot. But if you look very closely, that's just an idea, Eugene. That's just a habit, Eugene. There's no fixed Eugene. There's certain conditions that come together for a while. And, and when those conditions uh, popped into the world, they said, okay, let's call him Eugene. <laughs> right? I was just lying there, I remember. I'm lying there, and they're going, oh, Eugene. I'm looking around, where's Eugene? You know, because I didn't know. Do you know that? Do you remember that time before you had a name? Who were you then? What were you then before there was an idea about who you were? Something's here. I want to be clear about that. See, this is a confusion. I'm, I'm moving now from impermanence to selflessness, it just technically, from anicca to anatta in Buddhism. Um, it doesn't mean that the teachings of selflessness, the teachings that um, um, that Impermanence in a human form means there's no fixed self. <clears throat> the teachings of selflessness, selflessness doesn't mean there's nothing here. It means what's here is uh, ecstatic, is alive, is in flux, process, dynamic, mysterious in that way. It can even speak and listen, right? Something's listening, something's speaking, something's thinking. There's thought here, there's words, there's ideas, there's concepts, it's all happening. But we may not have to wrap something around it all in a fixed way, in a solid way. And what's beautiful And surprising is even though that's very threatening to our sense of self, right? Like the ego says, no way. Are you kidding? Why can't he talk about, you know, love or something, you know? (laughs) But when that sense of self relaxes its grip, it's a pleasure. It's a delight. It's like, oh, this is like being alive for the first time, they say. like, oh, this is, what a relief. You know, the old story about the, about the old, you know, Thai monk. He said, no self, no problem. <laughs> so one of the things that happens as we begin to unplug in a very complete way is different characteristics of reality start to show themselves. One of the characteristics is impermanence, or a Nietzsche. One of the characteristics, and these are, I'm describing now that what are called the three characteristics in Buddhism, one of the characteristics is the not-self characteristic. All of a sudden that realization or that insight that starts to happen is, oh, I'm not who I've taken myself to be. I'm not even what I've taken myself to be. That all those ideas, all those beliefs, all that all that uh, conceptual framework, it's fine, it's good, you know, it's, it's good. I mean, I still know, you know, Eugene wants to go to Eugene's car and Eugene's house. I mean, that's all fine. But not to be fixed around that not to be concretized around that, is actually a great freedom. And the freedom means that we can function more fully, paradoxically. That in our intelligence functions, our creativity functions, our heart, our love, our compassion, our joy, functions naturally, spontaneously, effortlessly, unself-consciously. So it's actually a good word to use here, a good term to use here. We all know what it's like to be unself-conscious, right? You know, or we all know what it's like to be self-conscious, right? Everybody know what that's like when you're feeling really self-conscious about being somewhere or talking to someone? It's total. It's dukkha, right? It's suffering. And when that releases... You can still talk to someone. Actually, you have a much better time talking with someone or being somewhere or doing something when there's no self-consciousness, self-centeredness, no worry about me or I or mine. Actually, I'm going to tell you a story. This is an odd story that happened to me on retreat. I we'll see if I can do it. I don't know if I can, but it's, it's just that while I was sitting, one of the things that would come sometimes is dharma talks, right? You know, I'm a dharma teacher, so what comes, dharma talks. And mostly, I don't, I don't pay much attention to them. But every once in a while, they're good. <laughs> they're good dharma talks. And uh, and um, and sometimes I'll make a note or two, and just and then put it aside. And then at the end of the retreat, I'll look at it again and see if it makes, you know if it's just gibberish or not, you know. It's like, if you ever took psychedelics when you were young, you'd have these great experiences, you write them down in the morning, it's like, what, what is that? But, um, so it can happen in retreat, because especially a month of sitting, it's definitely in an altered state of consciousness. And um, I had this one Dharma talk came, but what was really odd is it, it didn't come in my voice. It came in the voice of like a Southern preacher. and it was actually about selflessness. It was like it was like it was, it was just the oddest thing, because it was like this voice is coming and saying, um, "Let's see if I can do it a little bit.") <laughs> I was sitting there, I was just sitting there, minding my own mind, my own being, my own body. <laughs> and then it came. Came down, came down, and it grabbed me. It grabbed me and it took me. Took me and it held me. And it was holding me tight. And it was that old identity. It came down, it was like holding me and grabbing me and not letting me go. And it was the identity and the identity and the me and my identity that got me. And it got me good. I wouldn't let go of me. I just want to be mindful and open and present and free. And no, there was this identity. Amen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> and I suffered with it. And it suffered me. It hurt me. It kept me bound to I and me and my identity. So that was a little bit of the Dharma talk that came on my tree. <laughs> it's wild. And that, that's definitely a first for me. You, you have seen it now, heard it now. And it was about this question. You know, it was like all of a sudden I just saw something. And I started to wonder what happens if I don't identify with this experience? And it doesn't mean, I don't mean dissociate from the experience. I mean, stay fully present with the experience, whatever it was. I don't even remember what was happening. But what happens if that identity, what if I don't have to identify with it? And of course, in that kind, when you have that kind of time to sit, when a, when a thought like that comes, it can be very powerful. In other words, the mind is already very concentrated, very collected, Very present. And one of the characteristics of a concentrated mind is that it's sensitive and malleable and can turn towards freedom very easily. It's why we want to collect ourselves and compose ourselves, gather ourselves, center ourselves, because as mind and body become one, then the movement towards freedom becomes easier. And so I would just say, well, what, I would just, it it wasn't even that I would say it, it was almost like a feeling, the words were maybe there, but maybe not, but what if I don't identify with this? And then what's here? And so you can even play with it now. Whatever's here now, you don't have to change it. You don't have to get rid of it. You don't have to fix it. This is really the beauty of the Dharma. You don't have to fix yourself. Just see what's here. If you're tired, if you're agitated, if you're happy, if you're bored, if you're calm, if you're irritated, whatever's here, just don't identify with it for 30 seconds. Just see see it for what it is. It's an arising, impermanent, selfless, conditioned, moment of reality, that's gonna change. That's not you in any fixed way. It's just, it's just reality. It's just, it's just, It's just the magic or the beautiful manifestation of reality and that there's a part of us, there's a capacity we have to first of all be mindful of it, to know it for what it is. We know it when we're irritated. We know it when we're bored. We know it when we feel good or happy. We know it, We we have that capacity. But you notice that capacity notices the particulars, no matter what the particulars are. The capacity is not touched by the particulars. The mindfulness, the awareness is not bound by what it's aware of. The knowing is not bound to what it knows. So the Buddha said pay attention, pay attention to the body first and foremost in the four foundations of mindfulness. Pay attention to the heart, to the feelings, to the motions, to the feeling tone of any moment. Is it pleasant, unpleasant, neutral? Pay attention to your mind. Pay attention to your attitude right now. Pay attention to the atmosphere of your mind. Begin to see through the eyes of wisdom that none of this is I or me or mine. It's simply what we get to steward, the body, and the heart, and the mind, for maybe a hundred years. And part of the maturation of our stewardship of this body and heart and mind is, is developing the skills, the skill sets, to be wise. And the skills that we develop is mindfulness and compassion. And then we begin to unplug, even as we stay present with all of it. We begin to have a perspective that's not attached to any of it. And then we have a tremendous amount of freedom. Freedom to choose, freedom to act, freedom to not act. Freedom to see our reactivity and not be bound by it. Freedom to see our fears and our concerns and our anxieties and not have to believe that's who we are. That we, see, we begin to see there's something greater than any particular here. Uh, I have one really interesting example near the end of my retreat. Something grabbed my mind and wouldn't let go. It was like some incident with some person from you know four months ago, and what they did, and I did, and, you know just the usual mind right. Just grabbed on, it and it went rah 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 rah, and it wouldn't stop. And I was at that point. This is like close to the end of the retreat. I, I wasn't even, I wasn't even trying to stop it. I was like, wow, because my mind had been, my mind had been very quiet. It had been very quiet. It was like, oh my god. I was like. Wow, it's just grabbed on, and it's not stopping. And I'm, okay, I'm being mindful of it. But, and, you know, usually when it, I'm mindful, a lot of times things just poof anyways. But not this. It was just going and going, you know, for a couple hours. And, and then at some point I started to see, oh, there's something else here that's not my mind. There's something else that knows, I'm knowing my mind. That knowing is not my mind in the conventional sense. That there's a freedom the Buddha talked about that is beyond the body, beyond the heart, beyond the mind. He described it this way. And this is right from the teachings on mindfulness. If you ever read the actual teachings, the he, first teachings are all different ways to be mindful of the body. And he gives the practices, and then he gives what's called the insight. And the insight, he says, in this way, one remains focused on the body internally, externally, or both internally and externally, or one remains mindful of the phenomena of the arising of the body, or the passing of the body, or mindfulness just that there is a body, all these different ways to be aware of the body, he says. And then he gives the, this one line, that's the insight. He says, and one remains independent, not clinging to anything in this world. One is mindful of the body and remains independent, not clinging to anything in this world. One remains mindful of the heart and feelings and emotions and remains independent, not clinging to anything in this world. Mindful of the mind, the atmosphere of the mind, the states of mind, not clinging to anything in this world. Unplugged. Unplugged. So I'm... I'm, we're basically out of time. I'm going to stop in a second, but I didn't give you the third characteristic, so I'll just name it. Which is the third, the three characteristics are Nietzsche Dukkha and Anatta: impermanence, dissatisfactoriness, and not self or selflessness. And the the, the important thing to remember about dukkha, or suffering, dissatisfaction, unsatisfactoriness, unreliability, is that it's not a bad thing. None of the characteristics are bad. Impermanence is not bad. You know, if the fact that, that's, it's just a characteristic of human life. It's not a mistake. It's not a problem. It, we, we did, we're not gonna die because we did something wrong. Right? It's just what happens with life. It lives and it dies. We don't have to make it a problem. Um, suffering or, or dissatisfactoriness, maybe a better way to translate dukkha, simply means that we begin to see that there's, <coughs> on subtler and subtler levels, that we won't actually find the happiness and freedom we seek in the conditioned world. The freedom we seek is in the unconditioned, and then we can return to the conditioned world and bring the gifts of our realization to that world. But that the, the, real, the deepest happiness that we seek is not in getting and having and keeping, no matter what it is. It's just not there. It's here, it's actually sitting in your seat. What you seek is sitting in your seat. And that's why it's important to take some time and unplug slowly or over time to see what is it? Where is it? Can we make it real? Can we realize what we seek? The freedom, the love, the the, uh, uh, liberation of heart and mind that we seek. And then, Function in the world, which is then and then the things of the world, it's not such a big deal. And then, of course, the third characteristic is the not-self characteristic that because things are impermanent and there's nothing fixed, it's just true of the sense of self. It's, it's a functional quality of human life. It's not necessarily the essence of who and what we are. So I'll end with a quote from Kalu Rinpoche that I like very much. He says, We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you realize this, you will see that you are nothing or no thing. You're not a thing. There's no static thing. We live in in illusion in the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you realize this, you will see that you are nothing or no thing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Being nothing, you are everything. Let's sit together for a minute, please. Together we will offer the merit or the blessings of our time together here this evening, of our practice and our our devotion to the Dharma. We offer it not for ourselves, or not simply for ourselves, but for all beings. May it go out in every direction and touch beings in every world. May it be of benefit to them in innumerable ways May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering, from the suffering of war and of fear and of division and of racism and of hatred and of greed and of ignorance. May all beings be free from suffering, free from confusion, free from delusion. May all beings awaken. May all beings unplug and realize their true nature, their Buddha nature, the nature of wisdom and compassion. May all beings be free. you for your kind attention. I have a couple more announcements. Next Sunday you can, uh, Sylvia Borstein will be here. Dinner will be served. Maybe you can have dinner with Sylvia. Uh, it would be a great help for the volunteers if you will help um, move the chairs to the side of the hall. Um, I'm not sure which side you'll see. If you are able to stay longer and help and are not blocking another car, we would certainly appreciate your help. Please check in with one of the volunteers or staff wearing a white badge. Um, When you leave, if you're heading east, remember you have to go west. In other words, you have to turn right and then go through Woodacre to get back east on Sir Francis Drake. Our friends, the police people, have been very mindful lately of people going left or even making U-turns over here in Woodacre. So if you want to practice with them, you can do what you want. Uh, yeah. And uh, if you're in San Francisco and would like to join us uh, any Sunday night, I lead the Sunday night group in San Francisco at the Unitarian Church. Pamela, Pamela Weiss leads the Wednesday evening group. We have a lot of uh, activities. I left some newsletters on the back table if you're interested or... Go to sfinsight.org. Please take good care, everyone. Be well.